Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another amazing episode of Radically Loved. This is Tessa. I am hosting you today. I'm so honored to introduce you to Dr. Kwan Stewart. Dr. Kwan is a graduate from Colorado State University Veterinary Program, and he's been practicing the veterinarian for over 22 years. He's worked in nearly every part of this profession. So when and if, and you definitely should pick up this book, you'll get the whole lay and the book is what it takes to save a life, a veterinarian's quest for healing and hope, which is a beautiful book. So when you get to pick up that book, like, oh my gosh, I'm just, I'm excited for you. And also keep the Kleenex close because it's, I'm going to warn you, a tearjerker, but also so hopeful. Anyways. So he started working in a veterinarian shelter in a depressed area of California, and then through a series of events, which I'll probably let Dr. Kwan walk you through, he really came to understand the struggle for pet owners to afford healthcare. And then I just love how you weave in the topic of homelessness or houselessness. And, you know, I live up in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, Oregon, and Vancouver, Washington, these areas there's a, a large population of people without homes. So that's definitely a topic I want to touch on today too. So before I get going too much, Dr. Kwan, how are you today? And thank you for being here. I'm great. I'm, I'm doing well today. Today, I uh, I feel rested. I have mm-hmm. a, a crazy busy life with a bunch of kids. And of course, the book is coming out here in just a few days. But uh, no, I'm good. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And thank you for writing this book and thank you for doing this work. I would like to actually, if we could start off by talking about the Project Street Vet, for people that haven't heard about it, would you tell us what that is? The Project Street Vet is a charity that my brother and I established a few years ago. And its mission is is simple. I give free veterinary care, health care to pets of the unhoused, to, to people living on the streets who don't have access or resources to care medically for their pets. Yeah. So I know you talk about it in the book, but will you tell us in your own words, with your own voice, how this came to be? This is a long, it was a long climb. I'm actually now a 25-year practicing vet. And if anyone knows a veterinarian, or just step back, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are pet parents, Mm -hmm. the emotional ties to our pets they are very intense on both sides, on the love side, on the loss side. And I, in my 25 year arc, I've gone through my share of challenges, emotional challenges, staying in this field. And you touched on me being a shelter veterinarian. That was really the kickoff moment for the so-called street vet, which is the moniker people have now given me. They probably know me more as a street vet than they do my first and last name. But I was at this shelter in 
2007, at least I started in 2007. It was right when the recession hit. It was a terrible time. And in this particular area of California, Modesto, it was hit particularly hard and the economic crash was severe and people just didn't have the money to care for their pets. They were dumping their pets in droves at my shelter. We were a municipality. And just so people understand and can distinguish between what a municipality is versus, say, a no-kill shelter or a rescue, our municipal shelters cannot turn animals away. Those other entities do have the luxury of saying, no, we're too full, sorry, too many medical issues, so forth. We can't say no to anything. You can show up right at our doorstep, drop the leash and walk away without any questions asked, and we have to take that pet in. And so you imagine if this this rural town where the stray animal population, there were already plenty of issues around pet ownership. That's when this was. I stepped in this work, never having done it before. Before I was this sort of pampered Southern California vet. I was living out my dream, mostly in San Diego, practicing near the water, which is what I always wanted to do. And then I found myself in this, you know, sort of war zone, as I described, trying to take care of this county and and reduce the euthanasia rate. By 10 a.m. every morning, we were euthanizing, depending on the season, 50, 60 animals. By 10 a.m., my team and I were destroying 50 to 60 animals. And I'm the one in, in charge. I'm leading. I'm the one who's having to, you know, basically mark their death certificate. And it took a toll. I mean, I wanted to quit. Three years into it, I realized this is not why I got in the business. And I wanted to walk away. And it changed on one day. And on this day, I told myself, I cannot go in to work. I just can't do it. I was sitting outside of 7-Eleven. And uh, it's a place I typically stop for, for coffee, sometimes gas. And I was just contemplating what I was going to do next. One thought I had was just to go home and write my resignation letter to the shelter. Another thought, I had some other thoughts that weren't so good. And yeah, I sat, I remember just sitting there for quite a long time. I don't know how much time it passed. Finally, I get out of my car and I go inside to get my coffee. And as I'm walking out, I see a homeless gentleman to my left, sort of tucked in the corner as we so often see them, right? They're kind of stashed to the side. And he was there with his dog. And I had seen this guy before and I'd walked right by him before, regrettably. But on this day, I stopped because I noticed his dog had some sort of skin issue. And as I got closer, I could tell it was a really serious skin issue. I approached him, introduced myself. I'm Quan Stewart. I'm a veterinarian. I see your dog has a serious skin problem. What's going on? He said, I don't know. I, he was, and the man was just desperate. And her skin issue was severe. It was caused by fleas, just fleas, but fleas long enough and bad enough can do this. They can destroy a dog's skin. And she looked like a burn victim on her hind end. Hair was gone. Skin was red and bumpy. And I said, if you're here tomorrow, I'll return with something that should help. I did, as promised. Her few dollars out of my pocket, a few more minutes of my time. And then I saw the same dog about 10, 11 days later. The dog was transformed. The hair was coming back. She was wagging her tail. And the man sitting in the same spot looked up at me with tears in his eyes. And he just said, thank you for not ignoring me. And that was the moment for me. I still think back to that day and I, I get a little choked up because I was about to quit the veterinary profession. And if anybody knows what it takes to, to become a vet, you would know how serious a thought that is. But that, that random act, spontaneous act saved me. And Therefore, the title of the book became very easy, What It Takes to Save a Life, because in that moment, I thought I was helping or saving that little creature. But as I learned later, in, in fact, it saved me.
And it got me back to doing what I got into the profession to do in the first place, and that is save animals. And on my free time, I just started walking and searching and finding unhoused folks with pets and delivering free medical care. Mm, yeah. So you illuminated something in the book about, I had never really thought about it this way, but as you start to progressively approach people and on the streets and ask them if they want help, if you can help them care for their pets, there's this fear that their pets will be taken away from them. And I didn't really, until I started reading your book, I didn't realize this, that somebody else, like, um, what is the word for, like an animal control person could take someone's pet away from them if they don't have something like a rabies vaccine certification. And so there's like, not only are you addressing and serving the pets that need it, but also like you have to be able to build a relationship with a person so that they can trust you enough to understand like this person is not trying to take my animal away from me. They're trying to help my animal. So I appreciated that. Also, like just the your ability to learn about the different reasons that can cause that can create a situation where someone winds up on the streets or without a home, right? It's not just, I think that's so important to highlight. I think it's so important that you brought it into the book. And it certainly seems to be part of the reason why this work is so important to you is that you could easily see yourself having landed in that person's same shoes. I think we we don't realize how close we can all come to being in a similar situation. And so being able to humanize people that we often walk by. I mean, I'm I'm guilty of it too. I do it all the time. Like I'm sitting at a stoplight and somebody's sitting next to me on the street with their dog. And I feel like, okay, what do I have to offer this person? I don't have any money. You know, I don't have any cash. I don't have any food in my car. I feel ashamed to even look over and be like, I'm sorry, I don't have anything. I'm sorry that you found yourself in this situation. I guess where I'm going with this, <laughs> I'm going somewhere, is would you give any advice? Because for me, when I read something like this, I think, okay, I want to be part of the change and to do nothing is not helpful, right? So how do we help and not hinder. What is it? You know, I don't have a veterinary license. I can't show up and be like, hey, here's some flea medicine. Is there any advice that you would give to somebody who wants to be part of the solution? Yeah, I, I would first start by saying that you shouldn't feel ashamed. I mean, I think just the awareness alone of acknowledging this person is in a tough spot, wanting to help. I mean, that's a, that's a good place to be, or at least that's a, the foundation for it. And you, we can't help everybody we come across. Let's be honest. The, the homeless issue is in crisis mode right now. You live in the Portland area. I'm down in Southern California. And any major city has a, a terrible homeless issue. And we're seeing them every day. We cross their paths often. We can't help, help everybody. But a couple things. And that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. I've heard from them at times that they want nothing more when the exam is all said and done and I've offered some guidance and maybe done some treatment, in some cases, no treatment at all, because I will tell you, a lot of these dogs are in remarkably great health. They do a wonderful job of taking care for them, especially given their resources. But when it's all said and done, sometimes they just like to hear from me, especially being a veterinarian, that I'll say at the end, you're doing a great job. They just want to feel validated. They want to know because they get criticized so often, I'm sure by so many people. People driving by the car screaming at them, why do you have a dog? You can't take care of yourself. I've heard it. I've had people spit at us while I've been kneeling down next to a traffic light, doing an exam, throw food, an empty bag of empty McDonald's bag 
at us or spit in our direction as we're driving by. I think just hearing from me, you're doing a wonderful job and keep it up makes their day. And as one person told me, I, sometimes I just want to know that I matter, that I still matter or that I'm seen. So if you happen to be crossing paths with someone, one of these folks one day, you don't always have to dig in your pocket. Sometimes just saying hello or how are you? Treating them like you would another human instead of ignoring them. I'm sure they acknowledge too, not everybody can help them or everybody has cash in their pocket. But I think it's worse sometimes when we act like they're just this invisible shadow amongst us mm-hmm. or the dirt under the rug. And yes, I, I've done my best to try and humanize them, but also let people know just to notice them sometimes. But when it comes to their pets, sure, if you can carry an extra bag of dog food in your car at times and stop and hand it out, that's great. Or another suggestion I have for folks is for those pet owners who see their own veterinarian, ask your veterinarian to sponsor an unhoused person's pet once or twice a month and that you'll, you'll donate to that fund and maybe have the veterinarian advertise to the rest of his clientele. Say, hey, I'm going to start doing this. It's a, morale, it's a great feeling and morale booster for a clientele and a doctor's office and his technicians and the staff to say, you know, a couple times a month, we're going to bring in a pet that would otherwise never get the care and we're going to take care of it. And, and donate, if you can, if you have the money, $50 or $100 here or there to that cause. And that would go a lot. Could you imagine if every veterinary practice in the country, every single veterinary clinic in the country started taking in just one or two unhoused pets for treatment every month or so? I could almost stomp out this problem without having to, to walk the streets and, and burn up my tennis shoes every week. So that is also one direction to go. And, and I would tell people, just remember that if you're trying to be a part of the change, it doesn't always have to be a lot. It just takes a lot of us. It takes a lot of us moving in the right direction, but you don't have to try and go out and do something monumental. Yeah. Thank you. Those are great suggestions. I appreciate them. And I love all of those suggestions because they feel accessible. That's something that's totally manageable and I can do it. Anyone listening can do it. And I thank you for saying I think that's where I get stuck is in the shame of like, oh, I'm part of the problem, you know, and I need to just get over myself. We sometimes we just need to get over ourselves and be like, okay, well, let's just be human. Like I'm a human, you're a human. Let's just acknowledge each other. You brought up another topic that I was actually was thinking about it as I was reading the book. And it is, I oftentimes have that similar thought where I'm witnessing dogs with their owners living on the streets that look and seem very well behaved to me. I mean, oftentimes these animals aren't even on leashes. They're not out of control. They're not reactive to other dogs or other people. I was wondering if you could speak to that, if you had any thoughts about why that is. What's the difference, like a domesticated animal? I mean, I have a German shepherd personally at home. We adopted her from the Humane Society and we had to do so, so much. And I know she's a very specific breed, but I had to really educate myself on how to take her for a walk and what to do. So I'm just, I'm curious about the difference between animals that live in homes versus animals that live outside with their owners. And what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. I also have a German shepherd, German shepherd mix. Her name's Cora. And I adopted her from my old shelter. I will share this little nugget with you first. Veterinarians have their favorite breeds too. I think a lot of people are under this assumption we love all dogs and love all breeds, and we do, we do. But we were pet parents at one point too, right? As a child and in high school and undergrad, I had dogs and I wasn't a vet yet. I had my favorite breed. My favorite breed are Dobermans. I love big dogs. I'm not a small dog guy. 
But my least favorite breed, and, and no one hate me, I just, I'm being very transparent here. I'm, I'm giving you guys a little trade secret about veterinarians. <laughs> the breed I like or dislike the most are German Shepherds. Mm. But the reason for that is in my 25 year career, I've been bit eight times. And six of those have come by way of, yes, a German Shepherd. And I don't know why, if these dogs, these freaking dogs can read me or they just, they've been talking amongst themselves like, this guy doesn't like us, just tag him when you get a chance. But yeah, so my first bite came when I was, I was probably a week out of vet school. And it just, I think ever since then, they can smell it on me. So I'm never going to get a German Shepherd again. You know what? I was walking the halls of my old shelter one day, just there to say hi to people. And when I walked in, I said, I am not adopting a, a dog, guys. He just wants to know that I'm here to say hi to some old friends. And I walked out with his German Shepherd puppy. <laughs> and, you know, I love her. But on some days, because of the Husky in her and the German Shepherd, she's very smart. She's very high. She's high energy. She needs a lot of attention. Some days she's a hot mess. And I keep telling her, I'm going to go drop you off in Skid Row <laughs> and let you get like a boot camp example of how you're supposed to act. Because to your question... I see some of the most behaved, intelligent, friendly dogs I've in, in my 25 years. I would put an unhoused street dog up against that four or $5,000 invested trained dog in my clinic almost any day. Because you're right, these dogs are exposed to a lot of things at a very young age, a lot of distractions, noise, street noise, people walking by, shouting, and... The other piece is their human is with them all the time. I can't claim that with Cora, right? And, and that's what Cora needs. She needs more of daddy, but daddy goes to work eight, nine, 10 hours a day. And that's the case with most of us. But these people on the streets, they're, they're with each other, with their pets almost every moment. And you can see the relationship. You see the bond. They walk right by their side without a leash. They stop, they heal. They can tell them to stay as they go away for an hour and come back you know, with food or whatnot. And it's remarkable. I, I do, I commend them almost every time I'm out there. Like, I, I wish I, you could give me some of that and I could take it back home. Yeah, likewise. So if you ever get the answer to that, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> so I have so many questions for you. As I was preparing for this interview, I was like, oh, I want to ask him this and this and this. To me, it's kind of like, I feel like I was telling my husband this morning, it's like I get to talk to Cesar Milan. I don't know if you get this a lot or if you find that... Funny, helpful, not helpful, but anyways, that's because I grew up learning about dogs through Caesar. And then I was like, oh, well, I want to try all of this stuff. You know, we have to learn how to walk the dog and we have to learn how to communicate with the dog. So as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think after the the shelter and starting the street vet project, then you started to work with dogs or not just dogs, but animals in like Hollywood. So training dogs and learning how to you were the on-site vet right will you tell me a little bit about this story because obviously i don't have it exactly no you're right you're on the right track <laughs> i so after my t my stint at the shelter and i did five years to the day because five years was when my pension vested and i said you just have to i have i have to hang on for that reason alone let me just get the five years and it was a good thing because i didn't quit at year three that day outside of 7-eleven and i hung on for another two years by the time i was done we had cut the euthanasia rate in half we almost doubled the adoption rate and we had built a brand new state-of-the-art shelter. 
a shelter that was really like, I call it like a beacon to the city. I, when I, my vision, when I got there and they were working out of a 40 year old shelter, it was just horrible. There were 12 dogs packed or squeezed into a small area. Now every dog has its own run. But I said a, a shelter, a good shelter, city shelter should be part of the city like a, a library or a park. It's a place for people to visit and enjoy and be excited to come to with their family. So I started going down the shelter route again, Tessa, and see what happens. I, I just like, I'm back. Now I'm suddenly back in the shelter. Where were we? What direction were we going? I was up to the point where you started to work with training yes. animals in Hollywood. In, in Hollywood. Sorry. Yes. Left the shelter after five years. And then I, I need to do something completely different. So I went into, and, and a lot of people don't know this is actually a thing, but I went into the service of protecting animals on film sets. So animal actors, as we call them, all around the world on your favorite shows. These could be background animals. These could be hero animals where they're, they have a, a character name and they're a big part of the storyline. But there is a business for protecting these animals. So I was hired as the chief vet for American Humane and... I ran the No Animals Were Harmed program. So many people are familiar with that saying, no animals were harmed during the making of this movie. That is a 75-year legacy program. And I had uh, about 40, 50 safety reps, we call them, that I would disperse around the world onto movie sets. And they would they would be there to, to essentially keep the animals safe and guide the production staff and directors on what's good, what's bad, what to do, when they're worked too hard, things to avoid. And, and I did that for the better part of seven years. And I pulled away and I went on to Netflix. And still today, I am Netflix's veterinarian and I work with their production team, production teams around the world on keeping animals safe. What does that look like on a day-to-day basis? I mean, are you are you checking vital signs? Are you reading body language? Is it like... What does yeah. that look like? That, yeah, that's a great question. I it's it's a lot less of actual medical and a lot more of sort of behavioral protection. You have to just to give a quick example. Directors have wild visions, creative visions. Like, you know, I want to jump this horse over three train carts, and uh-huh. then I want to have it run around and and you just have to, you know, get them to pump the brakes and explain that one, that's just not viable. Two, that's very risky. And our whole job is to make sure those animals walk away at the end of the day healthy and happy. Mm-hmm. So it really is just guiding this creative industry who doesn't know a whole lot about animals on how best to keep them safe. So it it comes down to working too many hours, to making sure, for example, that some animals are on a certain sleep schedule. We start working with exotics and some animals are nocturnal. So we need to make make sure we try and keep their sleeping schedule intact. It's very nuanced things that you might not even think about. But at the end of the day, again, it's all about welfare and safety. Interesting. Wow, that's so, so interesting. So on that thread, though, I was curious because I think you started to touch on this in the book. I might not have gotten to that part yet, but... I'm so curious about how animals communicate with us. So they're they're different it's dogs in particular, cats also, because I have two cats and I have two dogs. So I'm always trying to like understand what's going on inside of their heads. <laughs> and so I'm curious if you have any, you know, insight or have you learned anything about different body language, like tail wagging on dogs means something totally different in cats as far as I understand. So yeah, anything, anything yeah, topic? I, I would say that that is like a, a universe of stuff. We, we could spend another two hours talking about, about this because we have learned more and more as a profession. We just didn't give enough attention to the emotional mm-hmm. side of the pet. It's been more the physical, right? And 
I'll give you a quick example and then I'll, I'll give you some advice for your listeners. When you bring your dog in for nail trim, for some dogs, nail trims are traumatic. And you hand the leash off to us, our care staff. We go in the back, we close the door. And for those difficult dogs, traditionally what you do is you put them on a table with a bright light shining down on them and understand that a dog has no wherewithal to understand what is happening, why it's happening, and what benefit it has to them. So in their mind, this could be a torture that lasts for hours and hours. They, they, they have no sense of time or exactly what's happening. We put them on this table for the dogs that are difficult. I have, you know, we kind of pop on them and, and one tech will stretch the leg. And you can just imagine this dog is looking at you with its eyes bugging out. Please stop, please stop. And we quickly trim the nails. And for the ones that we clip too short, they start bleeding, we put some powder on. And then almost like a rope cattle, we jump off the dog and put the leash back on and walk it back to Mrs. Jones. And, and we're back feeling, feeling good about ourselves like we actually accomplished something. You know, high-fiving, like, all right, we got him because, man, he's a tough one. Meanwhile, that dog has stored some of the worst memories possible in its amygdala and is going to carry those on. And then we wonder why he's putting on the brakes every time, you know, you're having to like, come on, come on to drag him through the door at the veterinary office. And this is part of the reason. So we've learned a lot over the past 10 years on what emotionally, what dogs have an aversion to and what they like beyond just the training and behavior. So you talk about Caesar, that's more of the training. But when it comes to the emotional status of a dog, we've learned a lot about how they like to be touched, the patience we need, how to reward them or ingratiate them with treats and treats and more treats. And so we're implementing all these little things in something called Fear Free. So if anybody's more curious about this topic, I would ask you to go to Fear Free, just, just Google Fear Free or fearfreehappyhomes.com and you can get some real world advice on this in, entire topic, stuff you can use at home, to prepare your dog to go into the groomer, to the vet, things you can do in the home solely to keep your dog relaxed when guests come over or there's fireworks shooting off. There are so many good little nuggets to know about. I would love to answer all your questions, but I would just direct you there because we'll chew up the rest of this real, real quick. <laughs> yeah, thank you. No, that's it's it's helpful to have a resource like that that I can refer back to. Okay, so I do have a, a couple of like personal specific questions that I'm sure are universal and will be helpful to many listeners. Mm -hmm. One is kind of related to what we just talked about with the fingernails. My German shepherd in particular does not like to bathe. She doesn't like to get a bath. I'm curious what your thoughts are on bathing animals in general, because I'm sure they have like natural oils that they need to, to coat their fur and stay healthy. Do we, are we over bathing our animals? Do they need baths that often? What are your thoughts on this? Well, Quickly on the cat side, the answer is no. Cats do not really need to be groomed that often. In fact, I adopted a shelter cat from my old shelter during those years I was there. Her name was Sushi. She was this, this little tiny thing that could fit in the palm of my hand. And I was moments away from euthanizing her because her she looked like she was dying. Her eyes were crusted. She couldn't see. She was starved. But as I was about to give the order to do that, she blindly crawled to her dish and started eating. And I said, don't do that one. I ended up taking that cat home, went against my own, my own little guidelines and ended up keeping her and had her for, for nearly 10 years. She was one of my favorite pets of all time. And I didn't bathe her for the entire 10 years I had her. Cats were remarkable grooming themselves. Now turn to dogs. Dogs are a little different. I will tell you, Cora, I've had her going on two years. She's gotten two baths. And short of her just wallowing in mud like a pig, 
or getting skunked or something else, I do think we tend to overbathe our dogs a little more than we need to. Now, I know, look, dogs are part of the family, so we have them in the home and we want them to be somewhat clean, sanitary, if they're going to be on the couch or the carpet or crawling into the kids' beds. So for that reason, yes, but there are, there are surface things you can do. They have like waterless shampoos. You can spray your dog and wipe them down. But sometimes going deep and, and always, you know, putting the soap and the conditioner deep into their fur and their skin. Now, you might have a groomer who completely disagrees with me, but I have seen dogs develop skin issues because they were overbathed. Mm-hmm. So I will just say, use common sense, speak to your vet. If you have a groomer you trust, work with them. But I think a little bit like vaccines, we're learning that sometimes, yes, we we can overbathe our dogs at times. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I had an inkling, but wanted, I, that's kind of a, a household argument between my husband and I about overbathing animals. And I'm like, I think they need their natural oils. I think it protects their skin and fur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so thank you. Sure. Okay. So one other personal question around caring for geriatric dogs. So we have an 18-year-old mutt who... She is, I mean, she's 18 years old, so she's doing pretty good for like living that long, right? But I'm wondering what advice you would give when someone starts to see things happen, like her back legs don't work as well. And, you know, you're starting to have that conversation about when is it time out of your care for her? You know, she, you see her suffering, maybe she's in pain. She can't really tell you, okay, I'm ready to go. What are like some key indicators about? This is the hardest one. I. Unfortunately, I have a lot more experience on this than I probably ever wanted to. I tell owners this, you know your pet better than anybody. So like your child, you're going to get advice from your child's doctor, from your teacher, from other people. And, and you have to be the reservoir. You have to take it in and decide what's best. Yes, in these moments, you really want to lean heavy on your veterinarian. They're going to try and, and steer you straight. There is no right or wrong answer when it is when, right? When the time has come. But I will tell you this, when your dog, two little, two little things to rest on. When your dog is having more bad days than good, your dog is an advanced age. That's different for different breeds, but we know, you just know my dog is old. My dog is old. And now five days out of the week, they go into a corner and they just sit and stare because they've developed dementia mm-hmm. or you know, they don't eat many days and, or they, they have an arthritic condition. They can't get up anymore and they're incontinent and they just pee in their bed. You know, as these things get worse and worse, it is time to start thinking, when am I holding on to my dog for me? And, and when I, am I just allowing this dog to really not enjoy its life? And the other little thing to rest on or keep in mind is for those dogs that are very sick, We know we have a dog with cancer. We know time is short. When is when? When should we consider euthanasia? Again, you know best. You know, as mom and dad. But as a veterinarian, I will tell somebody who's on who comes in and says that I just have to do it tonight. But I did this last week, and then I took them home the next morning, and they were fine for three days, and then they fell off the cliff again. And I tell them, when it gets to that point, it's probably time to just go with your instinct and probably do it because. It's better to do it a week too soon than a month too late. And the reason is when you try and extend their life artificially too much too long, the one thing we all fear, I think, for a seizuring dog is at night it seizures and it seizures and it dies in front of the kids, right? Or it has congestive heart failure and we've been managing as well as we can, but then it drowns in its own fluids and suffocates one night in your lap. 
that is the most terrible moment to have. We want to avoid that moment. So that's when I caution people on, you probably could squeeze another few weeks out, but it may not end well for you or your family, or you, you walk away with a memory you don't want. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's so helpful. I appreciate it. I wanted to come back to the book, What It Takes to Save a Life. I'm going to hold it up again. I'm wondering if there's, and I'm sure it's going to be hard to choose one thing. So maybe it's one to three things or like an overarching theme or what I'm trying to get at is what is it that you hope people take away from this story? Well, there there are probably a lot of little messages, but you know, when someone asked me once, what is the, the most important lesson? Because I guess what it boils down to is what I've learned. And that's why I decided to put this book into story form. I have hundreds now of stories from the streets. And I, I pick my best 10 or 12 of the most inspiring people I've met. And at first, I just want people to know that these people out here are just people. And you touched on that in the very beginning. These are just, these are people like us. And many of us probably more than ever, maybe one or two or three steps away from being on the streets ourselves. And it, it's not as quick. It's not overnight. It doesn't happen as swiftly as you might think. It could be, I don't have any more money coming in. I can't keep this apartment. I'm just going to sleep in my car for a week. And then I'm going to go stay with my mom or dad or stay with a friend. And that car stay turns into a two week, a four week until you say, you know what, I'm going to have to sleep on the street corner. And before you know it, you're homeless. You're officially homeless now. So some of us may be closer to that than we think. For those that aren't, I will tell you these people on the streets to set aside the judgment because you just don't know what they went through. I had the loving support of two great parents and I have a wonderful support system of friends and all of us have fallen. All of us have fallen down and depending on how deep a hole we fall, it is the support and love of others that pull us out. And sometimes these people simply don't have that. So I just want to remind everyone out there, these are people no different than us. These are our country people. These are Americans that are hurting and just find it in yourself at times to recognize that in, in however, whatever form that takes. And then the big lesson for me is I learned that kindness is a superpower. And that sounds a little funny to say. It sounds a little cheesy. If you would have told me that 15 years ago, I probably would have laughed or chuckled. But the power of an act of kindness is immense. It can do so many things on so many levels. And for me, it was healing. It was healing in a very life-saving way. And an act of kindness can change someone's day, but a gesture of kindness can change somebody's life. And that is what I discovered walking and walking the mile after mile, the treatment after treatment, the dog after dog, the new friend I've met time and time again, I learned that just sitting down and delivering a small gesture of kindness really can change the world. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. So again, what it takes to save a life a veterinarian's quest for healing and hope. I do hope that people pick this up for all of the reasons you just mentioned, because it's such an, for me, it inspires me. It gives me hope that, I mean, I, you, you touch on this in the book too, about the, the kind of personality and the sensitivity that a typical veterinarian, a person that goes into the line of veterinary services has. I think that's what I knew I couldn't do. I knew I couldn't ever work with animals because literally like, for example, a truck of full of chickens or pigs or cows that are headed clearly to the slaughterhouse. I can't even like, I have a visceral reaction to driving on a road next to something like that. I can't 
even handle really thinking about it. Even saying that I feel like is progress for me to be able to say that out loud. So the work that you do is so important and we need people like you. And I mean, I just commend you for your ability to be sensitive, remain sensitive and to not become desensitized and not to be stuck in that that world of like that compassion fatigue, right? Like so many of us have, I mean, you touched on it here too in, in your writing about just flipping through a newspaper or watching the news. It, it doesn't take long for us to become desensitized to all of the hurt that we see in the world. But instead to to shift the focus towards hope and to inspiration and to be inspired with something little that we can do. And that kindness is that small act, just acknowledging another person next to you on the street is that kindness. And it's enough. You're right. It's enough. Okay. So final question that radically loved Rosie will typically ask this question because it is the namesake of the podcast and, and because it is so important to her. And the reason why she created this community in the first place is to not only talk to other wellness experts and healers in this arena and tease out their habits and behaviors, but also to understand how each of us feel radically loved and what we radically loved. And so that is the question. I guess it's kind of a two-parter is what do you radically loved and what is it that makes you feel radically loved? I love doing the work that I'm doing. I was never sure or certain I was going to become a veterinarian. It was just my little dream since I was seven. So to describe what it feels like to have the authority and the expertise and the knowledge and the talent to save an animal's life, that is a really cool thing. I think back when I was in high school and I took my dog into the vet and I just, I don't know, I, he was like a superhero to me. You know, it was like, you know, Superman and... I just thought that is so cool. Like you, you have this license that can, that allows you to, to treat and save an animal. And I was just thinking like, like if we were, you were out with me, doc on a camping trip and like our dog got injured and you were there, like you could save the dog. Like that is so, that thought to me just sat with me forever. So I just love doing the work. I have found my little, my lane and I enjoy going out and meeting people and giving treatment and getting to know them. So this is my place in life. And, and I love that. And, and what do I love in turn? I do the, the gratitude thing every day with my children to name something we're grateful for. So there are hundreds of things that I, I'm grateful for that I love. I think at the end of the day, for me, it's about family and my children and my partner and what we've created. I love the support of my family because. That's what I've realized in walking and traveling the streets is a lot of people don't have that. And I think day to day, we may actually take that for granted. So don't, don't take your mom and dad for granted, your husband or wife or boyfriend, girlfriend, or those children that yes, give you a hard time many days, but at the end of the day, they're going to be the ones taking care of you. (laughs) When I am old and I'm wearing a diaper myself, if I can make it that far, it's probably going to be my children looking after me. So I love that I've created my own little beautiful support system. That's such a good answer. It's so interesting. I love hearing people's answers to that question. Dr. Kwan, thank you so much for sharing with us and for creating this project, for doing the work that you do. Where can people go to find out more about you and follow along with your story? 
we post a lot of things on social media and that's just where it's at. And I, I'm not a social media person. So fortunately I have my younger brother who does all my content and curates it all and edits it all and sets it to music and tells you stories so beautifully. So you can go to Instagram at the street vet or at Dr. Kwan. And we're always posting stuff on things we see in the streets. And then you can go to projectstreetvet.org. And there again, we have a list of stories and updates. And if you'd like to donate, there's, there's a way to do that. And that's how you can stay in tune and, and support the mission. Very cool. One more thing I'll add to that is that CNN recently named you a hero. And there's a really cool video of you online talking about the story. We talked a lot about it, but it's just, it's so cool to put a, if you're listening to this audio, it's really cool to put a face to the name. And also this, you can come watch the interview on Rosie's YouTube channel. So I'll make sure all those links get into the show notes. And Dr. Kwan, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com.